The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do. Thousands of years ago, the first man discovered how to make fire. He was probably burned at the stake he had taught his brothers to light, but he left them a gift they had not conceived, and he lifted darkness off the earth. Throughout the centuries, there were men who took first steps down new roads, armed with nothing but their own vision. The great creators, the thinkers, the artists, the scientists, the inventors, stood alone against the men of their time. Every new thought was opposed. Every new invention was denounced. But the men of unborrowed vision went ahead. They fought, they suffered, and they paid, but they won. No creator was prompted by a desire to please his brothers. His brothers hated the gift he offered. His truth was his only motive. His work was his only goal. His work, not those who used it. His creation, not the benefits others derived from it. The creation which gave form to his truth. He held his truth above all things and against all men. He went ahead whether others agreed with him or not, with his integrity as his only banner. He served nothing and no one. He lived for himself. And only by living for himself was he able to achieve the things which are the glory of mankind. Such is the nature of achievement. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, July 24th, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing, just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be Good morning and welcome to the show on this wonderful summer day. Still got another show to do in July, amazingly. I was looking at the Thursday calendars there. Welcome to the show today. We're 519-661-3600 is the open line number you can call if you want to join in on any of the conversations today. Of course, you can always write us, email us, that is, at justwritechrw at gmail.com. And you can always visit our website justrightmedia.org, where you can see a whole archive of the site, including listening to the current show and current archives. Today on the show, the Pope's been doing a tour uh, through the United States, through Australia, talking about uh, above some things, green issues, anti-consumerism, uh, sexual abuse, history of the church. We'll be talking about that a little later on. Also, something I've never really gotten into on the show, and I certainly can't do it justice today, but it, I've been putting it off too long. You know, the whole issue of literacy and uh, progressive education and the battle between what you always hear about phonics and whole language, something I was personally involved with at one time. Talk about that a little later. And if you didn't guess from the opening of the show, we'll be talking about someone I've talked about a lot on this show, but not about the person, only about her ideas as such. And that, of course, is philosopher-novelist Ayn Rand, uh, which I'll be talk- who, whom I will be talking about later. But first... We're sort of in the middle of the lazy days of summer. And I have to tell you, I'm feeling a little lazy myself too today because I've just come out of a pretty hectic work period where I, when I work, I do it in a big run. Sometimes I don't get two or three weekends off in a row. And 
I'm planning to do a study on laziness this weekend, okay? I, I, I want to do nothing. And I'm thinking about applying for a government grant so I can do a study and, you know, write down my observations, except uh, I'd be too lazy to write down my observations. I'd have to get somebody else to do it, right? Because <laughs> then I wouldn't be lazy anymore. You know, laziness comes up as a subject so often, I'll mention that a little later, that I thought I'd look into it just briefly. I just have some whimsical comments here on the whole issue. But I, I figured, you know, you'd find some insight on the whole issue of laziness by looking into psychology books or philosophy textbooks. And, you know, there's nothing in the index on the subject of laziness. And yet you'd think it's, it's somehow got something to do with motivation or lack thereof. And you'd think that books like that would talk about it. But maybe they just look at laziness as a consequence and not a cause. I couldn't, uh, you know, I, I looked in uh, my psychology textbook, nothing there, nothing in the philosophy textbook. But, uh, of course, I did find uh, some definitions in the regular dictionary. And uh, Funk and Wagnalls, for example, describes lazy as unwilling to work or engage in energetic activity. Well, you know, that could describe me almost any time of day. Uh, but does that make you uh, lazy, just being unwilling, or does that mean that you also aren't doing? Because sometimes you end up doing things that you quite might say to yourself, well, I'm not willing to do that, but I do it because it needs to be done, or there's a deadline, or something like that. And you might not feel like it, and, you know, with all that guilt involved, you start getting in the, I've even heard, you know, people who are really workaholics, who are working all the time, and they think they're lazy, just when they sit down and have a cup of coffee, or something like that. But basically, uh, other definitions include mo moving, or acting slowly, or heavily, uh, characterized by idleness or languor, you know, lays is to pass time in idleness, and they also relate to other words like slothful, which is sluggish, lazy, indolent. Again, you're using one word to describe the other, and then using the other word to describe that word. So it kind of goes around in circles a little bit. Uh, disinclination to exertion, habitual indolence and laziness. I think habit has a lot to do with it. It's uh, it's not what I want to do this weekend for a couple of days or take time off, even though you might feel like you're being lazy, because you can always think of things you have to do or jobs that are waiting to be done. But um, it, I just thought it was kind of an interesting thing. And of course, um, another thing that's called a sloth, <laughs> speaking of sloth, is a slow-moving, tree-dwelling mammal of tropical uh, America. And I was just, you know, maybe that's the green movement. I don't know. Cheap shot, I know. Uh, of course, the, uh, the opposite of lazy would be effort, right? Expenditure of physical, mechanical, or mental energy to get something done. Exertion. Something produced by exertion, uh, which is interesting because when they talk about effort, you might have something produced, and they give an example which is interesting. A, for example, a new theatrical effort. So you've produced uh, a work of art, let us say. It doesn't guarantee you it's going to have a value, but the effort's there and the work is there and the production's done. And um, in the other dictionary I checked, Webster's, they also say that effort, you know, is a product, a result of working or trying. And they, they, they really emphasize the word trying, a hard try. <laughs> That's what they called it, uh, you know, not just talking about doing something. Many people, uh, I think, attri attribute a lack of accomplishment as being a consequence of laziness or a consequence of that eternal, you know, procrastination that some people get into. Uh, I've heard often laziness being described from time to time as, quote, the source of all evil. You know, it is obviously contrasted most extremely by effort, which is where you 
expend energy to get a desired result. Uh, mental effort, of course, results in knowledge. Physical effort results in a physical application of the knowledge that you uh, gain through the mental effort. I don't think laziness is always that easy to identify or recognize either. You know, are you lazy if you're just feeling tired? Like I said about the workaholics, they feel that way. Are you lazy if all you want to do on a Saturday afternoon like me is just veg out? Is it always evil? You often hear people... uh, uh, It's interesting, the number of people who wrote about some variant of people are lazy, quote, and quote, as part of their uh, justification to ban drive-throughs on the Council of Canadians petition that I talked about last week. It was just astounding. And it's interesting that using a drive-through is being equated by some as being lazy. Driving your car instead of walking is called being lazy. Fast food is for lazy people. You know, go cook it yourself. What's the matter with you? Are you lazy? And, you know, the, the irony of this, of course, is that those who are screaming lazy the loudest are kind of, I think, projecting their own characteristics onto other people whom they perceive as being in some way off or in some way better off than them or in some way imposing on them. So there's a lot of envy behind certain accusations of laziness, and it goes both ways, too. It's interesting uh, to see how the left-wing and right-wing view laziness. The left sees the so-called rich using a drive-through as an act of laziness, and the right sees the so-called poor uh, as being so because they're lazy. You're poor because you're lazy, which, of course, isn't necessarily the case. I've even heard conversations about laziness being behind uh, things like poor grammar and spelling, which is something we'll be talking about a little later in the show. And some people say that using short forms in email correspondence is done because, oh, you're lazy when you're doing that. Well, I don't think so. I think uh, if you're on doing email and you still know how to spell, you can use short forms if everybody knows what it's all about. And, um, of course, you often hear people say that not laziness is the source of all evil, but money is, which, of course, I've talked about before on the show, is patently not true. And I think what they're admitting to is a host of uh, psychological and strange behaviors you know they're really talking about what they're really talking about when they talk about laziness is, is something i think more having to do with zero productivity when something doesn't get done and um, i think the real moral issue behind laziness is not the refusal to expend energy per se but to combine that lack of motivation with a desire for the unearned for a share in consuming something that you had no part in creating um you know, it's interesting, laziness can be a motive, not just a non-motive, is how some people look at it. And I've got to tell you, over my career, I have met many people who were, you know, not that honest, shall we say. I even got in a little tussle with one of them, it's kind of a bit of a history, but I won't get into it. But it's amazing how hard some people will work to uh, defraud people and steal their money when if they put the same amount of effort into honest endeavors, uh, they could be making just as much money or, or get the same kind of thing. Uh, that they could get without being dishonest. But dishonesty and laziness are, if, if that's all we're talking about, expenditure of energy, are not necessarily the same thing. And, uh, of course, when governments get into the business of transferring the earnings of those who do work to those who don't earn their keep, uh, not talking about those unable to, then you're living in a society that basically has reversed a fundamental and necessary moral order, I think. And, of course, unfortunately, that's what I've been arguing on this show, or what all collectivist political movements are really 
all about. And the best way they rationalize and justify their movements is to use a combination of, say, uh, you know, faith, religion, morality, slash, uh, in, in altruism mostly, and combine it with uh, politics and the state, which results, of course, in the use of force, public force. And uh, that, all, that's the, that, that, that combination, you know, faith and force, destroyers of the modern world, as philosopher-novelist Ayn Rand so powerfully demonstrated, not only in her philosophy, but with the help of history, uh, part of which she both lived and which she became, which, of course, is what our next subject is going to be about when we come back on the other side of this. We'll be talking a little bit about philosopher-novelist Ayn Rand, and we'll be back right after this. Quarter to six, six o'clock, six fifteen, six thirty, you know, I'm awake. Six thirty, quarter to seven, seven o'clock, seven thirty, around there. I'm up and thinking about, you know, getting a jump on the day. Like I'm telling you, seven thirty, quarter to eight, eight o'clock, eight fifteen, eight thirty. Eight thirty, quarter to nine, nine o'clock, around there, I'm up and I'm thinking about getting out of bed like nine thirty, quarter to ten, ten o'clock, and that's every day. Ten o'clock, ten thirty, quarter to eleven, I'm in the shower thinking about getting downstairs, you know, and getting jump on the day, like, you know, quarter to 11, 11 o'clock, 11, 15, 11, 30. I'm out there, you know, I'm downstairs, quarter to 12, 12 o'clock, 12, 30, quarter to 1, 1 o'clock, 1, 30, quarter to 2, every day. Because I like to get ahead of things, you know. February 2nd, 1905, St. Petersburg, Russia. Alisa Rosenbaum came into a world wrought with revolution and oppression. It was a country on the brink of war. Not a war between nations, but a war against the individual. A war that would make way for a form of collectivism history was never to forget. Even at an early age, Ayn Rand did not believe in God or in destiny, but she did hold the conviction that there was a battle she must fight, a battle in the name of a truth that was as clear to her as the red flags and blood-stained streets of her native St. Petersburg, a battle to hold an individual spirit above the dark, murderous horde that was enveloping her country. I had to get out of Russia, she later wrote if I wanted a chance ever to be alive. Ayn Rand did get out of Russia. She escaped to America and became one of the most controversial thinkers of the 20th century. Her philosophy gained a worldwide audience and her ideas are now a part of university textbooks and curricula. Her novels, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, sell over 200,000 copies each year. And according to a joint survey by the Library of Congress and the Book of the Month Club in 1991, Atlas Shrugged was named the second most influential book for Americans following the Bible. Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now until noon. I have been uh, referring often on this show since its very inception to the writings and works, of course, of philosopher-novelist Ayn Rand, before this show, in fact. You know, Jim Chapman was no, ch no stranger to Ayn Rand. 
But, uh, you know, we talk a lot about her ideas and, and, and her influence in the world. And uh, But today I thought I'd just let you know a little more about Ayn Rand herself and basically more about how I inadvertently became interested in her philosophy. And I've never had the privilege or I guess what some people might call the uncomfortable experience of meeting Ayn Rand. But I do know that her ideas are among the most influential in the world, regardless of constant denials to the contrary, which I see all the time. Once saw a futurist economic magazine back in the late 80s, early 90s, predicting that by 2000, everyone would have forgotten about Ayn Rand and her philosophy and, and what she called objectivism. And I kind of took a chuckle at that then, and I was proven right. Um, you know, I have a file folder at that I kept at the office, and I dragged it home this week, just full of stuff I've collected for 20 years every time there's references to Ayn Rand, and it's just amazing what's in there. I don't have time to go through it all today, but will in the future. I'll pick some items out of it. I've always thought that since I discovered myself uh, Ayn Rand's philosophy, what always amazed me about it was how it always worked. It was always consistent. I, like, she's batting a hundred on certain grounds. She wasn't right about everything, but when it came down to that epistemology and philosophy, you could count on it like, like you wouldn't believe. And I've always thought of doing, uh, maybe writing a series of articles called something like the Illustrated Ayn Rand, because I've seen and witnessed uh, in person, seeing the principles enact themselves right in front of me. It's really interesting to watch. But what I've always found interesting over the years is that, you know, liberal, conservative, socialist, religious, and even libertarian writers have, you know, really gone out of their way to disparage Ayn Rand, and in so doing, hoping to disparage some of the incredible truths revealed by her philosophy of objectivism. You know, part of it is shoot the messenger so you don't get the message. I don't expect people to be perfect. That didn't bother me if Einstein couldn't tie his shoes or had other shortcomings. E still equals MC squared. It ain't going to change. <laughs> it's just it. That's the contribution. Now, you know, raised a Roman Catholic myself, I recall when I was attending CCH here in London in our history class. Uh, we had a great history teacher. His name was Mr. Cadman. I know there's some of you might even remember him. Uh, didn't always agree with him, but he, was, he, he, get, he kept that class in order, and he knew how to make history very entertaining. But one day he gave us this weird lecture about this person I'd never heard of before, this person named Ayn Rand, who apparently was some epitome of evil and whose philosophy of selfishness and greed was to be shunned at all costs. My goodness. Why he was bringing this up at the time completely escaped me because, you know, I was a total political and philosophical illiterate at the time, I guess. Though I now realize, looking back, that this would have been about the time of Ayn Rand's, you know, big wave of popularity really starting to peak, even though she got started back in the 50s with her philosophy. And that was the first and last time that I'd ever heard the name Ayn Rand until one fateful day, and I've told the context of this story on the show before, but at circa 1978, 1979, a well-known fellow named Mark Amory across the counter from me at his City Lights bookshop here in London thrust a paperback copy of Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, at me and said, Here, read this. <laughs> Mark, Mark was always so subtle about things, you know. Here, stick this in your face. You've got to read it. You know, it's, it's such a good way to get somebody to do something. Now, of course, I've uh, told the context of this story. You know, I won't go there again now. The rest is history, as they say. But I read it, and it was all right. It wasn't the big, you know, revelation to me. Rather common sense, in a way. And, of course, not all of the essays and chapters were written by Ayn Rand, although most of them were. 
And among the contributors to her book was uh, none other than Alan Greenspan, who, of course, was later to head the United States Federal Reserve Board. But to make a long story short, because I can still tell the longer version on future shows, over the years I've come to learn and study the philosophy of Ayn Rand. You know, the, the more I'm consistently amazed by how on basic issues of philosophy, and in particular epistemology, that's, that's the, the study of knowledge, how you know that what you know is true and factual, how to, how to separate reality from the BS, let's say. And uh, that's what epistemology is really all about. And I've just never seen any of her principles demonstrated to be wrong. Her, her novel, Atlas Shrugged, which is certainly not a literal novel, again, not to be taken literally. It was a bit of a science fiction, too, if you, if you look at it carefully. turned out to be quite prophetic in her observations about the motivations of different types of people, uh, often, despite my own resistance to her conclusions, uh, tended to be proved right when put to the test. Now, of course, to this very day, not everyone agrees with Ayn Rand, and if you think she's still not in, in the news anymore these, these days, she sure is. I clipped a lot of articles, both out of the uh, National Post and other ones, but uh, other papers. But the one that came up quite recently was uh, written by Richard Gwynn in the Toronto Star just this past July 18th. And uh, it, the headline didn't have anything to do with Ayn Rand, which was interesting. It was talked about Alan Greenspan. Greenspan's ideological grip broken. Uh, read the headline. And here's a bit of what Richard Gwynn says. Quote, he says, The week just passed, one marked by fears of a recession and by gyrations in the stock and mortgage market, will go into history books as the week that Alan Greenspan's term as chairman of the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank finally ended. It's a week that should be remembered. In fact, Greenspan stepped down from this high post more than two years ago in January 2006. The Fed's chair since then has been Ben Bernanke. But Greenspan's influence, which he exerted from the start of his record 20-year term as chair of the U.S. Central Bank, has persisted until recently, and now his ideological grip has ended. What ended it was the announcement in Washington last week that the U.S. government was bailing out the two giant mortgage companies, the quaintly named Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which account for about 50% of all housing mortgages in the U.S. Can you imagine such a thing? Uh, that's not a normal market condition right there, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> the immediate reason for the bailout was the obvious ones, that the shares of these two companies were fa falling so fast they would soon be unable to function. The underlying reason for the government's intervention related directly to the reason Greenspan is no longer the head of the Federal Reserve in the psychological and ideological sense of that term. Interesting, he, that, that's what he's talking about. For virtually all practical purposes, those two companies have for years operated without any regulation or oversight. They were examples of the free market at its purest and also at its most impure. Nominally, Congress regulated Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. In practice, it did no such thing. The two companies operated with immense and thoroughly devious skill. They filled many of their senior posts with retired politicians. That, that sounds like a private enterprise, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Thus softening any criticisms among others looking for soft landings. All the Wall Street financial houses supported them because they got fat commissions. Critics and non-governmental agencies and universities were silenced by generous grants and donations. In essence, the two companies did whatever they wanted. 
This pure free market was the perfect expression of Greenspan's ideology. He's an admirer of, and indeed earlier, he was an acolyte of philosopher Ayn Rand, inventor of the doctrine of objectivism. Boiled down, objectivism amounts to the creed, greed is good, end quote. Let nothing get in the way of individual self-interest, self-interested pursuit of profits. In actual fact, there's something to the notion that greed is good. Adam Smith espoused it in the seminal wealth of nations more than two centuries ago. We all do benefit from the ambition and drive of entrepreneurs among us. But the dominance in recent decades of neoconservative politicians and the slackening of moral standards among so many businessmen, salaries and benefits that aren't now merely obscene but near to megalomaniac have corrupted what was once, at its start, a useful idea. Greenspan magnified the scale of the corruption, not directly in any way. His integrity is unimpeachable, as is his intelligence, and yet he's blaming him for the crash. (laughs) It's interesting. But Greenspan's awesome reputation and his ideological conviction ensured that an important idea, two conjoined ideas, in fact, of the value of the free market and that the free market is self-regulating was extended to absurd limits. The consequence is today's credit crisis. The market left almost entirely to itself has produced that financial crisis. Also, but certainly, oh, sorry, all but certainly, a deep recession that need never have happened because the U.S. economy is highly competitive and productive, more so than Canada's economy, although ours, because reasonably well-regulated, is performing better. Yeah, we're doing real well, aren't we? We're so regulated, all our jobs are going south. But while the economic outlook is grim, the political one, with Greenspan gone and Bush soon to go and Barack Obama most likely to come in, is distinctly promising. Here it is relevant that the book Adam Smith most prized was not Wealth of Nations, but the theory of moral sentiments in which he inquired into public morality. End quote. You know, (laughs) what makes Richard Gwynne's column unusual is not his complete misapprehension of the facts, nor even his seemingly complete ignorance of the nature of what a free market is by definition and how it works in in, in mechanics. But going out of the way to attack the philosophy of Ayn Rand via Alan Greenspan, via the failure of two government-sponsored failed enterprise, which prove exactly to me that the market does work and that the government intervention does not. It's completely priceless, even in his own essay. He admits it. Politicians are were, were, were lining the boards of these companies. Uh, you know, he, he talks about Greenspan's reputation being impeccable. Why would you attack such a person? Because he he was upset at the you know the failure of these companies because that's the philosophy he supports is that the government got into this. You know, writes Terence Corcoran in his July 16th National Post editorial. Quote. There is nothing free market about the two American mortgage backers, hybrid institutions created by the U.S. government to support mortgages and make home buying easier and more affordable for Americans. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, prodded by Congress and regulators, socialized trillions of dollars of mortgage risk on the backs of U.S. taxpayers, end quote. And that's exactly what it was. Free market, give me a break. You know, I wonder how it is that some columnists can print what they do when the very definitions of the words that they use and the terms they're using are so bizarrely out of, you know, pick up a dictionary. It doesn't mean that. Have you picked up the dictionary lately? Never mind anything ideological, for heaven's sakes. And, uh, you know, if you actually look, I saw an article here in the Free Press, of all things, that says, uh, 
financial under financial disclosure July 22nd. Uh, Fed Reserve Chief plays it safe with his own cash. And it talks about Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke, you know, who doesn't treat his personal money the way the government was running it. And it even make, goes out of its way to point out, uh, quote, that Bernanke took over in February 2006, succeeding longtime chair personnel in Greenspan, who also played it safe when it came to his own investments, <laughs> of course. They're not going to treat their own money like they treat, uh, like the government treats it. And it's interesting, too, that when anybody works for the government, you know, they get smeared by whatever the government does, even if they're a perfectly honest person, even if they want to be moral and just within the government. Uh, you know, the Federal Reserve Board chair has a lot of power, but he still cannot circumvent Congress's ultimate goals and its spending and its and its policies. You can't get around that. The best you can do is, as they say, steer through the, the stormy waters and hopefully get through it. So, uh, I think we were better off having someone with the sensibilities of Greenspan in there than someone with the sensibilities of, say, Richard Gwynn here, who wrote this article. And, of course, if the two companies had actually been fully private, independent businesses, uh, you know, whose actions drove them into bankruptcy, let's say, then great, all the better. That's how the market gets rid of losers. Uh, you know, you, not everybody's a winner. As Milton Friedman so often pointed out, uh, capitalism and the free market and, and free enterprise, it's about making profits and losses, okay? We all heard about Ford <laughs> today, I think, eight, eight point something billion dollars in the first quarter. That wasn't a profit. And that's what part of the big problem is, of course. But when consumers are uh, constantly assured that governments will always protect them from market fluctuations. They get careless, and that's what happens. You know, they just get just as careless as Gwynn purportedly accuses the operators of the mortgage companies of being. Yes, honey, we can afford a 40-year mortgage at uh, 2%. Oh, well, never mind that the interest rates might go up to 12% in a year and a half from now. doesn't sound too realistic to us, you know. But... Uh, it's Gwynn's last sentence in his article that really betrays his agenda. Quote, you know, here, here it is relevant that the book Adam Smith most prized was not Wealth of Nations, but the theory of moral sentiments in which he inquired into public morality. End quote. In other words, what he's trying to say, and also smearing it with Ayn Rand, is that capitalism is not moral. Which is the irony of ironies, because when Ayn Rand wrote her book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, if you read the foreword to it, it's very clear why she wrote the book. She's not an economist, by the way, and she wasn't going out of her way to start a movement or anything like that. She was a playwright. She wrote books and plays. And, uh, and by the way, the clip you heard at the uh, opening of the show was, of course, from the movie The Fountainhead, um, which was done way back in 19, oh, I think, 49 or so, uh, starring Gary Cooper. And uh, she wrote the screenplay for that movie, which was not the greatest movie, by the way, I think... Uh, I would rather have seen it done in a more movie type of sense. But her whole reason for writing Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, was just to define it. She said, listen, once you know what it is, how can you support any other kind of system? Because she understood that there was a destruction of concepts that led to people being unable to argue in the political and philosophical marketplace. And if you don't even know what capitalism is, if you're thinking it's, you know, man out to, uh, you know, law of the jungle kind of thing, let's say, which it is not, capitalism is the only moral system. And that was Ayn Rand's uh, major, major contribution to philosophy and the point that she wanted to make. 
But that's all for about Ayn Rand today, because we could talk about this for show after show, and I do when I, when I introduce issues into it. We'll leave you with this. This is uh, from a 1959 interview with Mike Wallace on CBS uh, when um, Ayn Rand was first introducing her philosophy to North America. When we come back on the other side of this, we'll be talking about literacy. Can you? And now to our story. Down through history, various political and philosophical movements have sprung up, but most of them have died. Some, however, like democracy or communism, take hold and affect the entire world. Here in the United States, perhaps the most challenging and unusual new philosophy has been forged by a novelist, Ayn Rand. Ms. Rand's point of view is still comparatively unknown in America, but if it ever did take hold, it would revolutionize our lives. And Ayn, to begin with, I wonder if I can ask you to capsulize, I know this is difficult, can I ask you to capsulize your philosophy? What uh, is Randism? Uh, first of all, I do not call it Randism, and I don't like that name. All I right. call it Objectivism. All right. Meaning a philosophy based on objective reality. Now let me explain it as briefly as I can. First, my philosophy is based on the concept that reality exists as an objective absolute, that man's mind, reason, is his means of perceiving it, and that man needs a rational morality. I am primarily the creator of a new code of morality, which has so far been believed impossible, namely, a morality not based on faith. On faith. Not on faith, not on arbitrary whim, not on emotion, not on arbitrary edict mystical or social, but on reason, a morality which can be proved by means of logic, which can be demonstrated to be true and necessary. I signed a petition today to help stamp out illiteracy. Well, I'm pretty sure that's what it said, you know. You're listening to Just Right here on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will still be with you from now till noon. 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in the conversation today. Back in the early uh, 1990s, I guess, around that period, I once uh, ran for London's Board of Education, unsuccessfully, I might add. As it was better known in those days, there was no uh, Thames Valley Board, I don't think, in those days. And of all the issues that were thrown at me, quite unexpectedly, really, when I when I ran, because I thought it would all be about finances and and financing government and, you know, getting the education dollar there. But by far the most startling one was the issue of literacy just thrown in my face. I didn't even know it was a problem at the time. I remember attending many meetings in the homes of various parents who had gathered to try to understand why their schools were seemingly not able to teach their kids to read and write effectively. And as I began to look into the issue deeper, I learned about a teaching method and philosophy, as they called it themselves, I'm not using these words, that was their own term, that was called whole language, though I've also since learned that the name of this teaching method and philosophy changes almost with the regularity of clockwork. I don't know if they're still calling it whole language today or not. But essentially, there were two sides in the reading part of the debate. And you generally would hear it 
you know, lining up on the two sides of phonics on one side, whole language on the other side. And the former, phonics namely, taught that in order to read, one must be able to sound out the individual letters of the words, uh, that spelling, grammar, etc. were important, and that it all had to be taught in a very uh, individualized, critical, orderly, and systemized way. It wasn't just sounding out letters, as so many people tell you that's what phonics is. It's not. It's, phonics is a very systemized way of learning how to sound those letters out. And it's important to learn some things in different orders than others. If you read the details, you'll understand why. While the thing called whole language taught the reading more in the sense of whole words, which is why they call it whole language, you know, via associations, context, and a host of other processes that children were expected to absorb through repetition and group effort, basically. And although they sounded out letters and stuff like this, um, it wasn't really phonics in the strictest sense. Now, what happened, of course, during that period of time, as we went more into this type of uh, reading curriculum, what we called our illiteracy rate jumped amazingly. When I was in this back in the early 90s, I've got here. Now, I understand it's improved a bit because some of our governments have put a little more effort into this in the last decade or two, possibly because it bottomed out then, but I still hear bad news. But listen to this. Back in 90, oh, I think we're looking about 92 here. Yeah, June 92. Uh, Statistics Canada reports that 40% of Canadians had limited or non-existent reading skills. Now, that may not shock you, but you know what will shock you? Listen to the 1931 illiteracy rate, 3.73%. That was from the 1931 census. So suddenly you had a literacy rate just jump, all double, forget about double, off the scale. Now, it's been about 15 years since I was more intensively involved in this whole language debate. And few news items you can ever find on the subject, you know, <laughs> other than reading about a whole bunch of drive through bans and stuff, the few you read are saying or suggesting that things aren't really improving much. I have no way of knowing. I've got a grandson going back into the system now. Maybe I'm going to learn more. But after his first year of school, he seems to be reading okay. So to me, uh, whether it's his mom or the school or a combination of things, I can't say, and I don't want to brush everyone with the same brush, but th there is a statistical issue here. Uh, today's grad, grad sorry, less literate study suggests, according to the February 26th National Post by Janice Tibbetts, High achievers need sacrificed for inclusiveness, reads the byline. The article does suggest that uh, literacy among the general population has improved. Oh, that's where I saw that, right? Between 1994 and 2003, but <laughs> here it comes again. It also noted a, quote, drop in literacy rates among high school graduates. And researchers said it was more acute at the post-secondary level, end quote. And, uh, quote, no student left behind, end quote, reads the headline to an article by Allison Haynes in an August 29th, 07 National Post feature. And that article refers to students who are reading at a grade three level, but will have, the, have their, quote, transfer to high school this fall already guaranteed, end quote. Now, that's exactly the same kind of stuff I heard of, you know, back in the 1990s, transfer to high school. Uh, you, you, what, you don't pass? There's no pass or failures. There's no grades, none of that. So I wanted to investigate where all of this came from. And strangely enough, uh, I've just got enough time just to do a bit of the history of this. 
The best person I found to speak on this happened to be someone who knew Ayn Rand and, in fact, was considered her mentor in some degrees, and that was Isabel Patterson, her amazing book, The God of the Machine. And in that book, she had a chapter called Our Japanese or Japanese Education System. Wasn't that the word that Paul Van Meerbergen got in trouble with lately using that for, regarding housing here in the city? But here's what she wrote in that chapter, and what's important to note here is this was originally published in 1964, but written in 1943, okay, so we're talking a long time ago. Quote, the favored system is called progressive education. Any exact definition may be challenged because the advocates of this system have never given an exact definition, but let it be described in the most amiable terms, open to correction. Say that progressive education seeks to make schooling a pleasurable experience. It forbids positive punishment. It aims at once to encourage self-expression in the youngest children and social-mindedness in the older pupils, and that it claims to teach the child to think by experimental projects and by presenting debatable current topics for, dis for general discussion without dogmatic principles. In contrast, the old-fashioned education said there was no royal road to learning. It gave the teacher sufficient authority for any necessary discipline. It imparted positive facts and positive principles. It discouraged immature self-expression, sought to strengthen character by self-control against the social impulse, and attached personal responsibility to any degree of emancipation from the rule of obedience for children. It taught the child to think by the use of formal logic on impersonal examples, while contemporary issues were kept out of the schoolroom as far as possible. End quote. Now, author Isabel Patterson wrote those passages back in 1943, almost 70 years ago, when she warned that the old-fashioned kind of education was about to be replaced by a progressive form of education, which she saw as being sort of imported by the Japanese system, which I'll explain a little later re regarding reading. And she borrowed the analogy from yet another writer who preceded her observations by yet another 40 years, whose name was Lafcadio Hearn, who studied the educational principles and methods of Japan in contrast to those of the Western world. And Japanese education, wrote Hearn, has always been conducted on the reverse plan of what was being done in the West. Its object has never been to train the individual for independent action, but to train him for cooperative action. And then observes Patterson, uh, quote, for over a thousand years at least, the Japanese have been taught the purest altruism in the communal cult. The mere idea of the right to do as one pleases could not enter into the Japanese mind. No man's time or effort could be considered exclusively his own. His right to live rested solely upon his willingness to serve the community. Even the language reflected this altruistic code of ethics by avoiding the use of personal pronouns and modifying them to social meaning. Since Hearn made these observations, Western education has moved steadily towards the Japanese basis, that is, the progressive tendency. Class activities, group interests, social influences have become predominant, and the prevailing philosophy with which pupils are indoctrinated is that of, and she called it instrumentalism, quote-unquote, which denies that there can be any universal or permanent moral values or standards. Isn't that interesting? How often do you hear that today? The most striking result in the pupils is precisely that sinister absence of moral freedom. Neither evidence nor logic 
penetrates the fog in which they have been reared. It is difficult to bring one to any conclusion when detached from the group. They'll just say, well, I just don't think so, as if there could be no facts or no connected mental processes, which should lead to one opinion rather than to another, or to distinguish a conviction from a taste. When called upon to think, they cannot, because they've been trained to accept the class, the group, or the social trend as the, social, as the sole authority. They have been reduced to neural processes in a collective body instead of persons, end quote. Man, that almost sounds like a definition of the Borg in Star Trek, doesn't it? Now, what does all ha this have to do with phonics versus progressive education? Well, this is, to me, the most fascinating thing that she says, and this is just worth it right here. She says, The great use and value of a phonetic alphabet as distinguished from pictographic writing, hieroglyphics, or Chinese characters, is that the pupil is put in the position of the tools very quickly. In English, a child need learn only 26 letters and grasp the principle of their combination as indicating sounds, and he knows how to read. The phonetic alphabet is one of the greatest labor-saving devices ever invented. With Chinese characters or any other picture writing, thousands of signs have to be learned. Scholarship is largely wasted on the mere drudgery of memorization. And further, abstract thought is severely handicapped. To teach pictographic reading, the advantage of the phonetic al alphabet is nullified, including the systemization of knowledge by references under an index. Uh, you know, I really don't know how they do index uh, things under pictographic languages. It must be a very difficult thing to do, or they have to use some other language that uh, might be a dead language, like Latin, let us say. But there's just a big, or a bit of the background on uh, on the introduction of whole language and some of the problems that came in with progressive education. We'll be talking about that more on future shows, but first we want to get to the Pope's visit to North America and Australia, and we'll be doing that right after this break. I read that 10 out of 2 people are dyslexic. <laughs> Some of you are like, wow! I mean, wow! is well backwards. Mom for the Australians. But people do anything for money. You know what I read in the newspaper? That I dominatrix charge. 300 bucks an hour to tie you up to a chair, spank you with a ruler and tell you how bad you are. Back in Catholic school, that was recess. <laughs> yeah. I went to an all-girl Catholic school and the nuns would whoop you. And as they did that, they prayed in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And you were thankful there were only three amigos in the Holy Trinity. <laughs> Ah, they have the nerve to tell you, we beat you because we love you. So when I was a teenager, I punched Mother Superior. I said, I'm starting to like you. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9. 
FM, where we will be with you for about another 10 minutes or so. Uh, by the way, just before I get into the whole thing with with the Pope's visit here, just that little joke you heard before there about uh, dyslexic, uh, 10 out of 2 people are dyslexic. That also relates, in case you're unaware, to the whole reading uh, situation. I remember a, uh, a private school teacher here named Sheila Morrison, whenever she came to town on her private schools and, and visited radio or TV stations, the crowds would just pack in listening to her speak. And she set up a whole set of private schools for dyslexic children. And she told me once that uh, after hundreds of kids came there, supposedly to be cured of dyslexia, she said, really, out of all of them, she can only recall two that were really, truly dyslexic. And the rest were what she called products of the way they teach um, reading, at least these these kids were taught reading, so just something to be aware of. Now on to our current subject, uh, Pope Benedict has been on a tour lately, having visited the U.S. a while back, and more recently having visited Australia, just finished up last week, I think, or earlier this week, maybe. And judging by the media coverage of his visits, there seems to be two main messages being delivered by the Catholic pontiff, and one being an apology for sexual abuse by clergy in each of the countries he was visiting, and the second being a condemnation, basically, of capitalism and uh, freedom, which he doesn't realize goes hand in hand with it, which is nothing new for the Catholic Church, but interesting. This time the Church's anti-capitalism message was closed in green. You know, they put on that green garb. Uh, so what else is new, eh? God is green now, and after all, they both start with G, don't they? You know, G is for God, G is for green, G is for government, G is for gun, G is for good, you know? Ah, uh, gee, yeah, I know what you're thinking. But, quote, Pope offers apology for sexual abuse by clergy, uh, says Associated uh, Press article by Victor Simpson, and Pope deeply sorry for clergy's abuse of kids, uh, writes Rowan Sullivan, Associated Press, in the July 19 and 20th headlines of the Free Press. In these two articles, we learn that the church has paid out more than $2 billion, much of it just in the last six years after the case of a serial molester in Boston's diocese apparently gained national attention. Apparently the Pope's apologies, quote, did not satisfy representatives of the victims. Sorry is not enough. Victims want action, not just words, uh, said the Broken Rights Group in a statement posted on its website. And when Benedict spoke to uh, leaders of the Australian Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhist uh, groups in Sydney, he said, quote, In a world threatened by sinister and indiscriminate forms of violence, the unified voice of religious peoples urges nations and communities to resolve conflicts through peaceful means and with full regard to human dignity. And the paper remarks that his remarks come as the Vatican tries to cool lingering anger among Muslims over a speech Benedict gave in 2006 that appeared to associate Islam with violence. Benedict quickly apologized. Benedict said his church was in crisis in the West because many had lost faith in God and he urged them to cooperate against secularism and apathy, end quote. In other headlines, we read that Pope warns youth of a spiritual desert and Pope takes aim at consumerism, and Pope laments insatiable consumption. Uh, these are from the Free Press and National Post. Uh, Pope Benedict, wrapping up his visit to Australia, urged a crowd of 400,000 young people to beware the spreading spiritual desert that often accompanies modern prosperity. It's amazing. I guess all the poor people in the world are just, you know, filled with the Spirit, aren't they? 
Um, in so many of our societies, side by side with material prosperity, a spiritual desert is spreading, an interior emptiness, an unnamed fear, a quiet sense of despair, he said in his homily. And in another headline, Pope laments insatiable consumption. And he talks about insatiable consumption scarring the earth and squandering the earth's resources. And talking, he tells the people here in these island nations too that, you know, you're going to be flooded out when the, when the oceans rise and all this stuff. Quote, he noted that during, more, during his more than 20-hour flight from Rome to Sydney, he had a bird's-eye view of a vast swath of the world that inspired awe and introspection. Perhaps reluctantly we come to acknowledge that there are also scars which mark the surface of our earth, erosion, deforestation, the squandering of the world's mineral and ocean resources in order to fuel our insatiable consumption, he said. And then later, another, another headline, Pope takes aim at consumerism and the lure of false items, you know. Uh, on and on, all this anti-consumerism. The one thing that always strikes me about any religious dogma is the impreciseness of language and the lack of explicitness in terms of what is actually meant. I mean, what is consumerism? Ism? You know, I never heard, heard, never heard of such a belief system. Uh, consumption is a process of all living things. We need we need to live, we need food, we need clothing, housing, and a host of things above the level of mere subsistence if we want to consider ourselves uh, human beings. I think consumerism is an economic superstition. It's part of this false belief that there's only so much, uh, you know, fill in the blank, uh, land, water, food, fuel, oil, all essentially considerations of consumption, aren't they? Uh, that there's only so much available to us and that Therefore, it's the job of governments to ensure these resources are all allocated equally, regardless of the contribution, you know, anyone's particular contribution, that is, to the creation of those resources. Fixed pie theory, which is in turn, you know, turned into the uh, collectivist redistributive philosophy. Uh, that's why there, you know, there's no such belief in a system as capitalism. I and mean, even that's not real. Attaching the ism to capital was something Karl Marx did so as to imply that the workings of a free market system uh, based on voluntary exchange and pricing was attached to some diabolical belief. You know, you call it an ism in the sense of a faith-based belief system. Um, So-called early advocates of capitalism, like Adam Smith, never actually used the word or never even heard of it. They wouldn't have conceived of it. What has been coined capitalism is merely the economic dimension uh, the inevitable consequence, I guess, of any society based on reason and freedom. It's a society of voluntary trade, uh, not of state looting. That's, that's your choice all the time, right? You either trade voluntarily or somebody forces you to trade or buy something you don't want. Now, let's bear this in mind, okay? Why is the attack on the West? All countries, rich and poor alike, are consumer societies. So what's the real difference between other countries, other poorer countries in the West? Well, the West doesn't just consume, it produces. That is what the Pope and all collectivists of all stripes are really objecting to. Not consumption, but to production, that which is good, that upon which our lives depend on. And, you know, what is this, the cult of the individual, besides, you know, he talks about this cult of the individual, uh, which is, by the way, a direct attack on Ayn Rand's philosophy. Trust me, Rome knows about Ayn Rand. And when you look at the word cult, I looked in the dictionary again, what's a cult? A system of religious rites and observations, and also the followers of a cult. It sort of reminded me of uh, Monty Python's, you know, we're all individuals, that comedy skit in Life of Brian. 
We are all individuals, collectively shout all the followers of Brian. And there again, you see, you know, the purpose for which we have been created. Whose purpose is that? You know, you, you get this altruism thing going again. Apparently, your self-interest is evil, but your interest in the self-interest of others is good. How does that work? And, of course, that would imply that someone else would have to look after your self-interest, which at this point you can't even define anymore, given the inherent contradictions of altruism. I mean, it implodes before you even take two logical steps in the process. How could you have any self-interest if it's your moral obligation to be selfless and to serve the interests of others? And then what possible interest can the others have if they're expected to do the same for you? It's a complete blank out. It's a, it's a contradiction in terms, and that's why people always go for it, because they can say anything they want and mean something completely differently. And, of course, if you really had a society like that, it would be a society in which all values pretty much cease to exist. Civilization wouldn't be possible. And then you'd have the very conditions that I think the Pope uh, you know, seems to lament. So is it any wonder that, quote, side by side with material prosperity, a spiritual desert is spreading? Well, of course, when you're telling people to be selfless, how can they be fulfilled in any way if there's nothing there to be filled up with? That's about all I can talk about today. I think we're running out of time. Are we there, Taff? I'm getting that look. So consumers of religion, you bet. We'll see you next week. Till then, be right, do right, stay right, act right, think right. Take care. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright My grandfather says Variety is the spice of life He says that every friggin' day